0: like uh, the message title to this one, and if you were following me around over the last couple of weeks, I was in uh, Honeybrook, Pennsylvania last week and for Sunday, and so I was speaking Sunday morning in Honeybrook Community Church, and the name of my message was Flipping into the Kembu Vom, and I, I really liked the title, and so as I was preparing this week, it's like, I think it's legal to take my own title uh, and to use it in the next Sunday. It's a slightly different message, but I borrowed a few uh, of the concepts. It's very timely, timely for me, I think timely for uh, you guys, timely for the church at large, uh, and yet it's a rather confusing title. It, it would help if you knew what a Kembu Vom uh, was. And so I'll, I'll explain what a Kembu Vom uh, was. I think it's a was. I don't know that it still is, but uh, it could still be. <clears throat> Stan Dale and the Kembu Vom. So, uh, Stan, Stanley Dale, I just gave a, a, a fall Daily Thunder series, which I, highly would rec- I would highly recommend you listen to. It's called Daring to Do with Stanley Dale. It's like 24 uh, episodes. even has some guest appearances from Leslie and Dan McConaughey was in there. Really powerful message about reaching the unreached. The heart and the passion to reach those that do not know Jesus. And Uh, But in it, there's this sub-story of Stanley Dale. The whole thing isn't about Stanley Dale, even though you'd think it was. It's just a sub-theme that will run in and out of it. Stanley Dale was audacious. This man is one of the most unique characters maybe that has ever lived on earth, and he loved Jesus, and he was called to the hardest, most difficult territory on earth. And at that time, eh, Papua New Guinea, Irian Jaya, that was probably a good description of it, head-hunting cannibals, that was who was greeting you, but even the landscape and the countryside was treacherous. The the uh, creatures uh, were deadly. The plants, you know, had six long, uh, six inch long sago thorns. You know, so it's just like everything about the territory was venomous and dangerous. And guess who was built for such a such a challenge? Stanley Dale. Stanley Dale first uh, arrives in this Yali tribe, which is a rather scary thing to do. He's far away from all civilization. He's made his, his, his backpacking trip in. And so when the, the tribe finds that, finds out that there's this foreigner in their midst, uh, they sort of rally the troops to come and destroy him. At least intimidate him, right? Get him to run Hightail out of there because he doesn't belong here. This is the Yali territory, and these are the most manly of all tribes. I mean, the Yali, they were. Uh, they called themselves the lords of the earth. And so they come down in their war paint, and they have their, uh, their bows drawn, and Stanley Dale sees them on the other side of the river. And so he's, th- he's thinking, okay, we need to deal with this right off, right off the bat, sort of nip this in the butt. Let's show them who has the authority. So this is what Stanley Dale does. you got a whole army on the other side of the river, He walks straight towards them fearlessly, not even breaking a sweat. With a little smirk on his face, fords across the little stream and walks right up the hill towards them. It so terrified them that they all ran. He took on, without a weapon, an entire army. That's how he arrives in the Yali village. Okay, that's pretty cool. So there's story after story. There's some great stories. Like the time uh, they came to kill him. And he got a smirk on his face, took out his false teeth. Which they, didn't, they didn't know that false teeth even existed, right? And came up to them and talked with them with his false teeth. That scared him, and they ran off. So he's measuring out his airstrip, and he's trying to figure out, you know, he needs a certain distance, and there's this building, this little structure. It has a stone wall, uh, and he's like, ah, I'm going to need to, you know, go, go through that area. Well, little does he know that's a kembu vom. So, the Kembu spirits, like these demonic spirits that controlled the the village and controlled the entire valley, and the way that these people would survive was to appease the spirits. So, they would, you know, there were certain things, very sp- specific rules that they would have to uh, abide by, and anyone who was uh, uninitiated that went into the Kembu Vom would... Have to be killed. You'd throw them into the Heluk River, which was this mighty rushing river. They would immediately be dashed to pieces upon the rocks. And many people had died because of an accidental uh, stagger into the Kembu Vom, right? And so, I mean, Stanley Dale, though, what's he going to do? So he's measuring out and he's getting closer and closer to the Kembu Vom, and, and people in the village are starting to panic. It's like he's getting closer to the Kembu Vom. And so one guy came down and, and said, Could you, you know, please avoid that? And he's trying to speak in a language uh, Stanley Dale doesn't understand. but. He sees all the people on the hill and they're sort of looking at this structure. And so he gets the idea that it must be some sacred place, right? So he's thinking, okay, I need to nip this in the bud. I need to show them who's boss. I mean, this is literally what the guy does. He runs towards the kembu vom, does a flip over the side wall, and lands in the middle of the kembu vom. And sort of like, ta da! Uh, you don't do that. He just did. This man stared evil right in the face, and he didn't blink. And guess who blinked? The evil. You see, there's a principle in this that I want to draw out today, and I would say this is what we need in the body of Christ right now. We need a little of that, whatever you would call it. I mean, we could call it fearlessness, but I don't, I mean, I've done so many messages on fearlessness, I'm not sure if it's getting through. This is what we need. It's an audacity in the hour when most people would tremble. Oh, don't even get near that. To say, I'm going to not just get near it, I'm going to do a flip into it. What would lead someone to do that? To flip into a kembu bomb. So, the twos. I know you guys are probably experts in the fact that there are always two. And I always stick the bad thing on the left and the good thing on the right, okay? And so the first and then the second. You know, even the entire Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. And, you know, we have Adam, and then we have the last Adam, Jesus. And in fact, it says first man, second man. Isn't that strange? Jesus is 77 generations in, but he's called the second man. But we have Cain, Abel, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, Jacob. And you'll notice the first one can't seem to please God, but the second one has some strange favor upon him. Saul, first king of Israel. David, second king of Israel. Paul the apostle is going to unpack this in the New Testament, and he's going to begin to show us flesh and spirit. He's going to show us two different ways. We have an old man and a new man. The old man who is in Adam is dead in his trespasses. However, if we put off the old man and his deeds and we transfer from a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the dear son, we have life. And so then Jesus Himself is going to clarify, and he's going to talk about tares and wheats, tares and wheat. He's going to talk about goats and sheep. He's going to talk about virgins without oil and virgins with oil. He's going to separate out twos. So for us, we need to recognize that there's two ways of doing every single thing we do in this life. Two ways. Most of us have certain things that we've begun to adopt godly thinking towards. It's like, okay, the way I handle my finances, I want to do it over here now. And so we transition from the kingdom of darkness and selfishness and fear and anxiety over into God's kingdom. Oh, it's so much more pleasant over here. However, we need to allow a thorough house cleaning and a thorough transition of every area of our life into a new way of doing things, a way that is built according to the Spirit of God. And so, when it comes to appropriating challenge or difficulty or encroaching evil around us, there's two ways of handling it. One is to be panicked, to be thinking about self preservation. You know, if there's a shortage on toilet paper, what do you do from this vantage point? You go out and buy it all up. Okay, you hoard. And this is the exact opposite of the kingdom of heaven. What does God do? And that's sort of the question I want to bring to the table because I guarantee you, in the natural man's sense, you're not going to flip into a kembu bomb. You see, that is the behavior that is altogether other than this world. Humans don't do that. You know, you would never think of doing what Stanley Dale did. Never. And yet, we as believers hear what Stanley Dale does and get a smirk and go, I want to do that. You see, it is very, it is strangely magnetically attractive to our souls. I want that. Whatever that is, I want it in me. 1939. I'm going to call it the most pathetic generation ever. Now, I know some of you are thinking 2021 is the most pathetic generation ever, and I'm not going to argue, okay? I have uh, been deeply disturbed by the lack of common sense, the lack of intelligence in in the midst of a very intelligent people group. In other words, the power of delusion and the power of the enemy... To distort ideas. Like some of the things that are being pr- uh, proposed to our society today are so opposite of sensible. It doesn't even, I mean, it's irrational. That's the way my, my brain would look at it. And back in 1939, there was a similar feel. If you could see clearly in 1939, you would look around you and go, What has happened to the world? Boy, we are going to hell in a handbasket and fast. So let's just look at a couple of things that were happening in 1939. In America, we had a Great Depression. We were sucking our thumb, thinking about ourselves, and there was really no hope and future for this country. We were not doing well. And we were avoiding any challenge, any additional challenge, I can't handle anymore. And what was happening over in Europe? There was a character named Adolf Hitler who had actually taken hold of most of Europe at this exact time. He was running rampage over every power. In fact, in just a few months, he's going to take on France, who up to this point had always been one of the greatest military powers in Earth's history. And in a few days, France is going to fall. There's going to be one nation left, one, out of the whole world that is standing against uh, Nazi uh, Germany, and that is Great Britain. And even Great Britain is, I'm just going to say it, pathetic. They have spent the last seven years or so, disarming, take getting rid of all of their military equipment, trimming down their military because, hey, we aren't, aren't gonna solve any of these issues through military force. Let's lead the way uh, in, the, in, the, in and amongst the world by showing that we no longer want to fight wars. Meanwhile, what's the devil doing over here? And that's a pretty accurate description of Hitler, the devil. He's mounting his forces And he is playing everything against the political correctness of Great Britain. In Great Britain, all the young people are sneering at anything to do. The political correctness of the age was turn a blind eye to Hitler, let him have what he wants, it's none of our business. Wars are evil. And so as a result, you have, and by the way, I'm not a fan of war at all. And yet it's an interesting tension that you see here. Even the church in that time was just like, hey, You know, Hitler, the Germans deserve it. After the Treaty of Versailles, they deserve a little, you know, back. Okay, well, they've taken all of Europe now. Is that what you think they deserve? And so at this time, the the young people in Great Britain are basically telling the government, even if you drafted us, even if you called us to war, our answer would be no. We'll never fight for you. Okay, now, there's some ironies in this, okay, in this saggy, sloppy, selfish version of the world at this time. So any, any first world country was living, it was very prosperous, uh, you know, as you were going through uh, before World War I. You had extreme prospe- prosperity. Then World War I just devastated them. And now, I mean, the world is just fearful of another war. They do not want a war. It's like they're allergic to wars. They're allergic to contention. They're allergic to any challenge. Same way many of us can be where we want to retreat from the necessary battles that are before us because we're tired. And so if you were to look at 1939, you would agree with me, it's possibly the most pathetic generation ever. They are extremely disappointing. Their logic is out to lunch. Uh, there was one guy in the government that was standing against Hitler. You guys know him, right? Uh, Winston Churchill. And he was saying, hey guys, this guy's a liar. He's taking territory. If we don't do something now, he's going to eat us all up. And you know what they called uh, Churchill? A warmonger, a hate monger. The worst thing you could be called. I know today we're like, eh, who cares if you're called that? Well, back then, that was a bad term. And you don't want to be the hate monger. You don't want to be the warmonger. But to stand against Hitler, you'd be a warmonger. Okay? Now, in hindsight, we look back and Hitler. Churchill was right. And yet... In the midst of the fog bank, you oftentimes can't see straight. Now, I'm gonna flip slides here and I want you to notice something. 1939, the most pathetic generation ever. 1940, 1940 through 1945, 46 is considered by most people in this country and over in Europe to be the greatest generation ever. You ever heard that statement? The greatest generation ever, yeah, the World War II generation, the greatest generation ever. Uh, Excuse me, you do know that they were the most pathetic generation in 1939. What happened? What happened in between? It's called the Battle of Britain. You see, this battle is going to stir and awaken a nation, a nation that is slumbering, a nation that is thinking of its own self and not thinking about anyone else and is in a delusion of sorts, ideological delusion, and suddenly they're going to be awakened. Now why am I bringing that up? Well, maybe it's a hope uh, that we would be like 1939 Great Britain into 1940, that we would awaken from our stupor. The church itself is living in a stupor right now. We are buying hook, line, and sinker the world's memorandum there's so many churches that are participating in the delusion of the age. Wait a minute, I thought we were believers. What does the Word of God say on that? Oh, it doesn't matter what the Word of God says. This is what the culture says on it. Well, we don't follow the culture. We follow the Word of God. Something is seriously wrong in the body of Christ. It's like something's not operating correctly. Well, 1939. We could use a little bombing maybe Maybe some of what's taking place. By the way, the Battle of Britain is a battle in the air where the Luftwaffe from Germany, which is their air force, is going to come over and bomb every day. London is basically decimated by this. Most of us don't really study that because we're not British. You know, we're like, eh, hey, who cares about that? Well, tell me more about D Day. You know, we're, we're interested in other aspects of World War II, but this is what wake, awakened a people, it awakened a nation. You may feel like you're getting bombed right now, it could be the very, very best thing for you. You see, I think it's just high time we awaken and start to function as the greatest generation the church has ever known. So in Streams in the Desert, which is one of my favorite devotionals, there's this little bit I'm just going to read for you. Temptation is necessary to settle and confirm us in the spiritual life. It is like the fire which burns in the colors of mineral painting or like winds that cause the mighty cedars of the mountains to strike more deeply into the soil. Our spiritual conflicts are among our choices, blessings, and our great adversary is used to train us for his ultimate defeat. I really like that line. And since some of this is a little flowery and uh, poetic, I'm going to read this line again because sometimes we we don't see it. Our spiritual conflicts are our choices, blessings. See, many of us can be like, oh, praise God, yeah. But do you actually believe that? that our spiritual conflicts are among our choicest blessings, and our great adversary, you know him, he's the devil, right, is used to train us for his ultimate defeat. I just think that is a great line. Because what happens in and through these difficulties? We awaken, and we get stronger. If you study World War II, you're going to recognize, I mean, you actually look at two really dumb maneuvers on the part of the enemy. Hitler is going to invade Russia. I mean, you just have to throw up your hands and go, are you serious? Are you, you're going to awaken that bear while he's sleeping? They did, and it's going to cost them the war. And you know what Hirohito, the emperor of Japan, does? I mean, what was he thinking? He bombs Pearl Harbor. You're going to awaken America? Are you sure you, you know what you're doing? So America and Russia are going to be awakened. It, there was no hope in the world at this time. And these guys are going to pick a fight with the wrong guy. So here's, here's the way I'd like to say it. Does the devil know what he's doing right now? Is he thinking it through? Because last thing I knew, I know, we're in hibernation right now as the church. But do you feel that prod to our side? Are we ready to get our growl back? I shouldn't liken us to Russia. That, that might be a little dangerous. That was Stalin, Russia. So maybe I should be the eagle. We're the eagle in our nest. There's a little poker coming through. The ancient Phrygians had a legend that every time they conquered an enemy, the victor absorbed the physical strength of his victim and added so much more to his own strength and valor. So temptation, victoriously met, doubles our spiritual strength and equipment. I don't know if that can be proved in a test tube, but it's a great statement. So temptation, testing, conflict, victoriously met, doubles our spiritual strength and equipment. When we take the trials and we greet them properly we grow stronger. There's no downside to it. It is possible for us in our spiritual life, through the victorious grace of God, to turn account the things that seem most unfriendly and unfavorable, and to be able to say continually, the things that were against me have happened to the furtherance of the gospel. The things that were against me have happened to the furtherance of the gospel. 2021. Someone's trying to snuff out the church. Someone's trying to destroy the truth. Uh Uh-oh, you know what that means? It's like bombing Pearl Harbor. That is the dumbest thing they could ever do because the result is an awakened church. And when that happens, watch out world. The apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then the Apostle James in James 1, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith is producing something. That word hoopameno, which we translate as patience, is what, if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's what enabled the martyrs to go through any degree of suffering. Hoopameno, what produces it? The testing of your faith produces it. So you want to be stout and be able to stand firm no matter what? Well, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith is producing that which enables you to walk through anything. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So one of the fun things about studying history is you can actually get correspondence, you know, that would have been highly confidential at the time. But you can actually look it up and just read it. I mean, I know some of you might not be as impressed with that, but to me, it's, it's truly startling. Some of the things when I was studying through World War II that I can just read now personal correspondence from Hitler, even, to his generals. Like, I can read it, like I'm a spy, a British spy, sneaking in and reading it. It's pretty fun. So this is a private note from Winston Churchill to General Ismay. So he would have been over the entire military operation of the British. Winston Churchill says this, "...we are greatly concerned, and it is certainly wise to be so, with the dangers of the Germans landing in England." Every creek, every beach, every harbor has become to us a source of anxiety. So when you feel that the enemy is landing on your territory, it could be a little anxiety riddled. And right now, if I could articulate what many, many Christians around the world feel, as many Christians have felt this for decades long before we did, right? We're just beginning to feel it. Where we feel the enemy wanting to encroach upon our territory now, not just someone else's but our territory. And it says, every creek, every beach, every harbor has become to us a source of anxiety. So for us, we have little creeks and beaches and harbor. They're entry points. And we feel like every access point is available to the enemy. He can come in in so many different ways. I mean, you could just sit down and brainstorm all the different ways that the enemy could destroy you, and you could come up with a long list. It's a very, very bad way to live. It's a very, very bad way to spend all your time thinking about what the enemy has up his sleeve. It's hard not to do it. However, you have to have something up your sleeve. Sorry to use an illustration of cheating in poker, right? Up, up your sleeve. It doesn't sound like the best uh, illustration to be giving. However, you need to have a conspiracy of your own. What is the church doing? Are we just scared about every uh, creek, beach, and harbor of what the enemy is doing? Well, listen to this. The flip. What if we didn't spend our time cowering, but actually took our thumbs out of our mouths, steel our spines, and went on the offensive? Now, in this time, in 1940, Great Britain is extremely weak. We have just survived Dunkirk, which was you know, basically almost our entire, the, the entire military force and equipment of the British was stuck over in the, uh, the shorelines of France. They had to leave all their, their military equipment behind and give that over to the Nazis, and they made it over across by what's called the miracle of Dunkirk, all these boats and little fishing boats and everything. It's a great story. It's not what I'm talking about. We've survived this, but we are weak. We're beleaguered as a nation, if you're talking uh, according to the British mindset at this time. And Winston Churchill is going to do something in this time which should shock all of us in 2021. Because if you're just trying to survive, where do you usually spend all your energies? In survival mode. Have you ever been in survival mode? I know that that's probably a rhetorical question for most of us in here. But you know when you're in survival mode because you cannot think about others outside of yourself. You're just trying to make it through the day. You have issues in your life and you're just trying to solve them. And right now, Great Britain has every reason to be in survival mode. I mean, that's actually probably one of the best descriptions of survival mode would be 1940 Great Britain. They're the only nation on earth standing against this juggernaut that will not take no for an answer. What if we didn't spend our time cowering, but actually took our thumbs out of our mouth, steeled our spines, and went on the offensive? So listen to this. This is that same note to General Ismay. If it is So easy for the Germans to invade us in spite of sea power, some may feel inclined to ask the question, why should it be thought impossible for us to do anything of the same kind to them? The completely defensive habit of mind which has ruined the French must not be allowed to ruin all our initiative. How wonderful it would be if the Germans could be made to wonder where they were going to be struck next instead of forcing us to try to wall in the island and roof it over. An effort must be made to shake off the mental and moral prostration to the will and initiative of the enemy from which we suffer. That is a great quote. I mean, this is just a memo he's writing to the general. He's not thinking it's going to be, well, maybe he was thinking it was going to be printed someday, I don't know. I'm going to read that last sentence again. An effort must be made to shake off the mental and moral prostration to the will and initiative of the enemy from which we suffer. Uh, I think that same effort should be made right here. Let's throw off that mental prostration that we have to what is going on in the world and recognize that we are the church of Jesus Christ. So I'm gonna talk about the art of audacity. But the art of audacity doesn't just start with audacity. If I said, go out and be audacious, well, that sounds really neat and all, but that's not how it works. Audacity is the outflow of something. It is the fruition of something. Just like if I said, you know, bear a peach you couldn't just do it. You'd have to have, first of all, the ability to plant uh, that peach seed and have it grow into a tree and then wait for it to produce a peach. There are things that come before the peach. And many of us, when it comes to certain things in the spiritual life, we feel this, like, I need to be audacious. And yet, there are certain things before the audacity. Like, if I say, flip into the kembu vom, Most of you are just trying to get up the guts to go to Papua New Guinea for a visit, let alone go to the Yali tribe and stare them down. In other words, we're a few degrees removed from flipping into Kembu Valms, and yet we all desire it. And so this is what this message is about. If we're going to be flipping into Kembu Valms, let's get some of the most elementary movements down in our lives. So the recipe for audacity I know this is somewhat startling. It starts with faith. It has to. You see, we have to have a confidence that God is, that He is able to do precisely what He says He will do. We have to know that the shed blood of Jesus is for us. You see, the enemy has all sorts of cunning tactics to a, to estrange us from the power of the shed blood of Jesus. For instance, if you make a dumb move in your life, it's. It's very common that the enemy will immediately try and estrange you from the shed blood. It's like, well, yeah, the shed blood of Jesus is for all these people that do good, but look at you. You did bad. And so, the very thing that saves us, this faith, this faith in Christ, it's very very important that we maintain it and that we maintain a strong hold on it. Philippians 4:13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, every scripture I'm about to read is like classic Sunday school memory verse type of stuff, okay? Yet there's a reason why those scriptures are chosen. It's because they're salient and central to a mentality. Now, a lot of us, when we memorize them in Sunday school, actually discard them, not intentionally, but we move them off to the side like they're little kid scriptures. And we fail to realize that they're the essence of our thinking and our reasoning. So, no matter what you have facing you right now, which I don't know what it is, okay? It could be a health challenge. It could be a relational challenge. It could be a financial or a work challenge. Some of you in this very room are in a very difficult position in a work situation because of even the vaccine mandate. And you in your conscience feel that you can't get the vaccine, and as a result, it's put you in a pickle. What I would like you to do is I would like you to point at whatever that one thing is, And I would like to ask just sort of a series of questions. Is God in control of that? I know He's able to save you in the big picture, but can He save you in that situation? Can He supply you with wisdom in that situation? Is His grace sufficient for that? You see, what we have to do as believers is not just have a general faith, a faith that says, oh yeah, Jesus came, yeah, 2,000 years ago, yeah, He died. I believe He rose again, and I believe He ascended to the right hand of the Father. Praise God. It needs to be a specific faith too. And And what he accomplished on that cross is good for me. And it's not just good for me in a general sense. It's good for me in every single situation I will ever face. And once you start getting that very specific faith, you take your problem that is in front of you right now, and I want you to ask if you believe Jesus in that situation. Do you believe that Jesus... Is greater? Do you believe that he is a saviour in that situation? Do you believe that he's a deliverer in that situation? Do you believe that he's a redeemer in that situation? Because that is the testing of your faith. Which produces patience. It's not just the testing of your general faith. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe he exists? It's do you believe he is able? Do you believe he still is? Do you believe he is an ever present help in a time of trouble? Do you believe him? Do you believe that he will never leave you nor forsake you? Do you believe that you are in the apple of his eye right now. So this is my exercise, and this is how this message is even sort of coming out. I have gone through a very, very intense stretch in my life, both over the last years and then over the last little bit in regards to micro-movements where I'm tired because of the training season. It just it took a lot out of me. And I have had to continue to go and move forward and speak. I remember one of, the, one of my most tired weeks after finishing up the, the training, I had 10 messages I had to prepare that week. And I was ready to go to bed, and I had 10 messages to prepare that week. And here's, here's the key. I need practical faith. I need to know that God has given me that assignment, and I have everything I need supplied to me to triumph in that situation. So, Lord, I, I trust you. I trust you. Boy, I wish we didn't have ten messages. But I trust you. No grumbling. No complaining. Embrace it, Eric. Get some patience out of this. I don't know what your situation is, what your ten messages are, what your tribe on the other side of the stream is, what your kembuvam in front of you is. But there are looming challenges around us. You need an airstrip, and I have to have that kembuvam territory. God, what are we going to do? I, Eric Ludi, can do all things, not because I have it in and of myself, but through Christ who strengthens me. You see, I have a confidence that Christ is going to supply me to do whatever it is in front of me. It is a practical level of faith that is going to ultimately create flipping into kembu bombs. But you can't flip into a kembu bomb until you start to appropriate the power of the gospel in these small, seemingly insignificant areas of your life. Mark 10, 27. But when Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. So you look at a situation, you go, that's impossible. Right now, I would say on paper, there is no hope for this nation spiritually. On paper. I mean, do you see do you see a hope? Do you see a, a key leader rising up that is going to lead us out of this uh, ridiculousness? I mean, there's such a comatose state spiritually. However, though with man it would be impossible, who's the head of the church? Praise God it's not one of us. It's Jesus Christ, and he loves his church, and what he has promised he will do. He is going to get his ends. He is going to accomplish his purposes. And so that's where our trust lies. It starts with faith. Our audacity has to be rooted in something. And that is his faithfulness, his trueness, his ability. Ephesians 6.10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So the reason we have a secret ability as Christians is because like the rest of the world, we don't function in our first ability. It's like, oh boy, I don't have enough to be able to do this. This is impossible. Yes, it would be impossible if you stick here in your first condition. But if you move over in the power of the spirit, you actually can accomplish anything in front of you through Christ who gives you strength. Your job is to be strong in the Lord. See, many of us hear that and we're like, I just need to be stronger in my life. Yeah, be strong in the Lord. This is where your secret source is. It's faith in his ability and in the power of his might. How are you going to get this done? His might. It's always only been his might that enables you to function. Well, think about the church of Jesus Christ. What's going to change the course of history? His might, not ours. Our job is to be believers. His job is to be God the recipe for audacity. So it starts with faith. Now I'm adding a little line to our recipe. Then you access grace through that faith. That's the might. So when you believe and you have faith, what does that open up to you? The throne room of grace. So as a result, you need to access that. Many of us have grace, but we don't access it. I've oftentimes likened it to having a sword at your ankle, and the enemy's coming up and bopping you in the nose. And Spirit of God is saying, swing the sword. You're like, yes, I have the sword of the Spirit. And you know that you have it, but you don't really have it. You see, intellectually you have it, but practically you have not wielded it. That was a very bad sword swing. You have not wielded it by faith. You see, your faith opens up to you the treasury of heaven, the war chest of heaven. Everything you need for life and godliness is there, but are you taking it? Do you believe it's yours for this situation? Because you have everything you need for that situation. Do you know that? That's where the specific faith comes in. Now, if you have it, access it. Come boldly into the throne of grace where you may obtain mercy and grace for help in time of need. Come to him. He will supply you. He will arm you. He will give you the weapons, everything you need for this situation you have. As a result, you can smile now. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So when you marshal that faith, when you believe, it opens up that avenue of grace. 2 Corinthians 12.9, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. You're feeling weak? You feel like you can't handle this? Well, just allow God to speak this to your soul too, just like he did to Paul. My grace is more than enough for you right now. Everything you could possibly need right now. My might, my power, you have it. My armament, you have it in Christ. Take it. So I'm going to give you a great quote to use. There's a quote that I've I've thrown out in the past, and it's, watch what my God will do. It's a good quote. And this doesn't negate that quote. That's still a really good quote to use. However, I'm going to give you a good one today. Another, Another one to sort of throw in your your knapsack, when you, you have a situation in front of you, you need to make a declaration, I have grace for that. Oh, and that. And that. It's like Richard Wormbrandt's tactic when he was saying, preparing for persecution. He says, go into your local grocery store and walk through the aisles and say, I could live without that. 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 And I could live without that. That was what he proposed. But this is sort of the inverse of that, where you take each of your situations, and I could ask you, do you have grace for that? I do. I have grace for that. It's almost like a what is your position type of question. I'm in Christ. Well, therefore, you know the answer. I have grace for that. I have a long drive staring me in the face today. And you know what I practiced as I was waking up this morning? I have grace for that. I can sometimes—I don't know if any of you can be like this—but I tend to get a little more grouchy in travel mode. I don't really like that quality about me, and it's like something I have to be very aggressive with, and I have to be offensive with it because just packing and getting things organized, and you know, having someone's pillow like hanging out the side of something—it's like it, it bothers me at a higher level than normal, right? Because I'm in travel mode, and even when I'm traveling down the road, I can be more snippy then like relax. You'd think I would be relaxed. We're going on a family vacation. Eric sort of turns into a little grumpster at times. Uh, And so I need grace for that. And so that's what I said this morning. I have grace for that. And I could name a whole bunch of other things in my life. I have grace for that. And I, I, I have grace for that. Start appropriating the realities of the kingdom of heaven in your life right now. I don't care. You could use your imagination if you want of some terrible thing happening to you and your family in the future because of you know some evil regime that is out to get you. And guess what you could do? You could stare at it right now, stick your finger and go, I have grace for that. But Eric, what if you're imprisoned? I have grace for that. What if you're separated from your family? I have grace for that. Anything else? Wanna throw it my way? I have grace for that. I have grace for my calling, for whatever I endure. I have it. I know it. And as a result, it's preparing me to do something. I'm not going to give away what that something is yet. The recipe for audacity. It starts with faith. Then you access grace through that faith. Listen. Then when you know you have grace for that, dot, dot, dot. Guys, you intrigued to see what happens when you have grace for that? You can flip into the Kimbuvom. If you know that your God is going to supply you everything you need for that? If you know that you're not going to be shortchanged, if you know you were not left an orphan in this situation, if you know that the supply of God is sufficient for you, guess what? It changes your attitude. It's called rejoicing. I can rejoice now even though difficult things are happening to me. Why? Because God is going to triumph through it. In the darkest hour, Churchill flipped into the Kimbu bomb He went on the offensive against Germany at his weakest moment. Isn't that good? And of course, if you know history, you know that Winston Churchill actually won the war. I mean, it's an extraordinary story. It really is. It's an impossible story, just as impossible as it would be to see the church awakened and triumphant in the world today. It's an impossible story for us as men. It's not an impossible story for God as God. In the darkest hour, God is looking for someone to flip into the Kimbu vonk hey, is there anyone in here that's ready to do a flip? You do know I've won, right? You do know I'm in control. You do know that all things are beneath my feet, right? Church, hey, wake up. Wake up. You do know that my grace is sufficient for you. You do know that you have grace for that. Prove it. Others that have flipped into the Kembu Vom. I'll just give you a short list. Gideon. Gideon did a flip into the Kembuvom. It's one of the craziest antics that has ever been done in history. What was it? Somewhere around 215,000 Midianites against 300 men. Uh, These men were impoverished. They didn't have weapons. I mean, it was like a terrible situation. And he flipped into the Kembuvom. Of course, you could say, well, he was just doing what God asked him to do. Precisely. You see, there's two ways of living life. One is according to your wisdom, your willpower, your abilities. The other is according to God's ability, God's wisdom, God's willpower. When you live according to the second model, anything is possible. Even when the odds are so grotesquely against you, God will win. In fact, I think he likes the greater the odds. I think he wants to increase it. The Gideon story is proof of that. David David flipped into the Kembuvom. He ran. He sprinted towards Goliath. That word in the Hebrew, mahar, means to sprint, to move with liquid ferocity as a lion towards his prey. Who is the prey? Goliath. Who's the hunter? David. He literally is on the offensive. Jehoshaphat, one of my favorite stories. He's surrounded by three armies. He has this little diddly squat army in Judah. No ability to stand against this, but God gives him a promise. Go out, fight against them. You won't even need to fight. You just stand strong, you stand firm and hold your position. I'll do the fighting for you. The victory's yours, Jehoshaphat. Oh, well, if I have grace for that, the next day he goes marching out confident, with a big smile on his face. And what does he do? He sets his singers out in front. It's like, well, we've already won, so we might as well start behaving as if we've already won. What a great lesson for all of us. I have grace for that pretty good illustration here. Jesus flipped into the Kembuvom. He literally mocked and held in contempt all the powers of hell, all by his lonesome. It seemed that he was surrounded. He turned himself over into the hands of sinners, and you could just sort of see him spiritually flipping right into the middle of that lion's lair and breaking jaws. He is going to crush the head of the serpent, hanging naked like a criminal on a cross. What an incredible maneuver that was. Philippians 1, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, and then Paul is going to list different things that would uh, show that, this being one of them. Not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. So if you're going to live And have your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. One of the things is that we are not terrified by those that oppose us. And I'm going to first and foremost say spiritual powers that are seeking to devour us. We're not terrified by that. And what is that to them? It's a proof that they're going to be destroyed. That they're standing on the wrong side. Our fearlessness actually strikes fear in the enemy. The enemy is the one that should be terrified. Not you be of good cheer. I'm sorry, be of good courage or be of good cheer. So this is our Greek word that I want you to cherish. John 16, 33, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Why, well, God, how can I be of good cheer in a moment like that? The same way we can flip into a kembu vom. The same way we can ford across a stream and stare down hostile enemy forces against us. We serve the living God, so be of good cheer, church of Jesus Christ. He's overcome the world. Acts twenty three eleven. be of good cheer, Paul. He just escaped barely with the, by the skin of his teeth out of Jerusalem. Remember, they, they packed together. They made a pact to not eat until they killed Paul. Somehow he survived. And, and Jesus comes to us and says, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified of me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Oh, great, more of that? says, be of good cheer. You see how I triumphed through that? I'll continue to triumph in and through your life. Do you trust me? And Paul says, I have grace for that. You have grace for whatever your current challenge is. You short on finances? I have grace for that. You short on physical health and strength? I have grace for that. You short on wisdom? I have grace for that. Tharsos is translated as courage. Thrasos, isn't this a great word? Daring. So we'll call it the heavenly laugh. What is this tharseo, this thrasos? This is a heavenly laugh. It is the smirk at danger. It is the love of adventure. It's the eye twinkle of confidence or what we could call today the flip into the kembu vom. It is a maturing faith that actually gets a great delight out of the fact that the enemy's going down and that they can't stop us, that we actually serve the living God. And so as a result, we hold in contempt the power of the enemy, and we enjoy it. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall hold them in derision. I love this quote. C.T. Studd, if God who sits in the heavens can laugh, his children on earth should be loyal enough to do the same. The daring believer to laugh in the midst of danger, to have hope in the midst of total darkness, to leap for joy when falsely accused, to rejoice in tribulation, to love those that hate you, to forgive those that harm you, to dare to go upstream when all the water is rushing downward. Daring to do is Stanley Dale. Was he crazy or courageous? You see, when we live according to this pattern... This idea of living in the second uh, zone looks crazy. It really does. What Stanley Dale was doing, according to many, would just be stupid, right? I mean, I can't believe he's doing that. And yet, in the kingdom of heaven, it's brilliant. And it actually is going to reap an incredible reward. This man is going to, because of his life lived and and his life given, he was martyred, that Yali Valley is going to awaken to the gospel of Jesus Christ, Should the enemy fear the church of Jesus Christ awakening from its stupor in the year 2021? Absolutely. That is what I want us to ask for. That is what I want us to boldly go after. I want us to ask God to grow us up so that we are flipping into kembu bombs instead of running with our tail between our legs away from them. Father, I ask that you would do a mighty work of grace in us. We have grace for precisely what our current challenge is. And Lord, I pray that we would appropriate that. I pray that we would reach down and in the grip of our soul, grab a hold of the hilt of that sword that you have supplied for us in this exact hour. You have given us everything we need. So Lord, I pray that we by faith would take a hold of that everything. We love you and trust you, Lord Jesus. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. To take this specific message deeper through our daily Thunder discussions, visit Ellerslie.com, where you can also explore our sermon library or learn more about joining us in person at the Church at Ellerslie here in Windsor, Colorado. Thanks for listening.